Welcome to Objective Religion, produced in partnership with Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist and Gallup senior scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Brantam, Presbyterian minister and campus minister at the University of Illinois. And I'm Michael Lambert, producer from Baylor ISR. We're now here the week of October 19th. Nate, we're getting closer and closer to the actual election. This week, we're going to talk about um, a lot of things that are in the news. We'll have a quiz, and then our deep dive, so to speak, where we look in depth at one topic, will be on the fascinating and important issue of abortion, how abortion came to be such an important issue in politics and its relationship to religion. So a lot to talk about. A lot indeed, and I'm looking forward to it. But before we dive into the, the meat of it, we have a quiz. What is our quiz for this week? How many times is God mentioned in the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, an interesting question. By the way, we'll also fill our listeners in on how many times God or words relating to God are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, we'll come back and answer that question as we go forward. All right, looking forward to it. Well, let's dive into, into the week that was and talk about some of the headlines, talking about religion and the politics and the election. What have we got this week? Well, there are four main topics we want to talk about that were, that were part of the news this week relating to religion and the election. But before we start, I saw an interesting headline. Donald Trump attends masks optional indoor Las Vegas church service this past week. Now, what interested me, Nate, about that was that he's at a church. I mean, the, the wearing the mask, of course, is another issue altogether that's controversial, uh, controversy surrounding Donald right. Trump. But he was at a church in Nevada. Doing both us going to a service and, you know, mixing that with a bit of a campaign rally, as he does. Uh, indeed. So, again, Donald Trump very much intertwining religion and his appeal to highly religious voters with yeah, his Yeah, going campaign. after that evangelical vote. But the number one issue of this past week, I think, was the dueling town halls. Right. Uh, we were supposed to have a official debate on Thursday night in Miami with the town hall audience, but that didn't come to be for a lot of reasons. So we instead had dueling town halls. Donald Trump was back in Miami on NBC. And at the same time, actually a little longer, because his was 90 minutes, Joe Biden's was 90 minutes, Trump's was only 60 minutes, Biden was in Philadelphia talking to a town hall there on ABC. Uh, I watched them. I didn't see a lot of mentions of religion. No, not a, not a ton. Uh, Trump was pushed pretty hard during his town hall. Uh, Biden maybe a little bit less hard, but definitely fielding lots of questions. Uh, staying late even mm -hmm. to continue to answer people's questions because not everyone got a chance to ask them. So they have very different feelings, I think. Uh, oh, absolutely. Savannah Guthrie on NBC really pressed him more, the critics say, or the observers say, than George Stephanopoulos pressed Biden in his debate on ABC. Uh, Trump was asked about Amy Comey Barrett, and we're going to come mm -hmm. back to her, the Supreme Court nominee who's been going through the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And he said that uh, he did not talk to her about abortion, the hot-button issue that she is involved with in the eyes of many people, didn't talk to her at all, and didn't ask her how she would rule or what she thought about Roe versus Wade and so on and so forth. So that issue came up, uh, but nothing substantive really came out of it. Another one that's interesting is the rise of QAnon, which is a conspiracy theory that's 
gathered a lot of attention uh, over the nation and is definitely right-leaning. And it's been picking up steam within certain congregations. So that's hitting the media as well in the news as people are talking about pastors who've kind of succumbed to QAnon and are bringing their their flock with them into into a conspiracy theory. It's pretty baseless. Uh, I think it's baseless. Uh, Trump was asked about it on his NBC town hall, and he kind of jumped around the issue and said, I don't know what uh, QAnon is as a group. Sure. And then he said, however, I know they're against pedophilia. So he did know something about it, right, right. and so on and so forth. Uh, but, yeah, th- there was an article that said how QAnon uses religion to lure unsuspecting Christians that came out this past week on CNN. Uh, which is what you were referring to there. Although these are kind of anecdotal uh, instances, as you referred to, where a particular pastor or congregation uh, mentioned some of these QAnon-type theories, one of which was that COVID-19 is a hoax. Right, and what's interesting about it, though, is that it does have a lot of the same like apocryphal language about almost end times with great revealings and awakenings and all of this stuff. So the language does borrow very heavily, so you can see why that might be appealing across those lines. Yeah, we don't have any indication of how prevalent that is. We have to be very careful because right. people who write an article, as I say, can cherry pick a few examples. Sure. But, the, you know, the, the article that I just referred to that we're talking about here mentioned, you know, four or five examples. But there's, what, hundreds of thousands of congregations in this country. So we don't know by any means how widespread it is. But nevertheless, there is this kind of intertwining, it looks like, at least uh, in a few places, of QAnon and their uh, baseless conspiracy theories, I think it's fair to say, and, uh, and, and religion, evangelical congregations right. in particular. So what's your next one? Well, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett still moving right through the Senate at this point in time. And a lot of articles this past week talk about that, of course. And it's really uh, looking at it in two different ways. One article I saw say advocates of the president say that um, Coney Amy Coney Barrett is exactly what uh, he needs to have done to earn the vote of evangelical Christians and Catholics. And Biden supporters saying the other thing, other hand, the Catholic supporters need to look far beyond just uh, conservative justice and, and vote against uh, Trump for Biden for many other reasons. So she's, uh, as we've said before, a lightning rod, mm-hmm. uh, of course, uh, as would be true, I guess, if a Democratic president appointed a liberal nominee for the court. It would be the same way. Uh, when you appoint somebody that's very strong, uh, a justice, uh, a lawyer, to be a justice who is very strong on one side or the other, it's going to be controversial. One other thing, Nate, I saw an interesting article by Ron Brownstein this past week. He uh, publishes on CNN, uh, actually a friend of mine, but he talked about this fascinating fact that there are conservative Catholics who have been nominated by Republican presidents to be on the Supreme Court, but no evangelical Protestants. Uh, which is fascinating in and of itself. Uh, it even is. though, you know, the conservative Catholics appeal to evangelicals, there aren't apparently many evangelical lawyers uh, who are in a position to be nominated to the Supreme Court. And it is fascinating. It's kind of made some strange bedfellows because evangelicals and Catholics didn't always used to see eye to eye, but they do on one issue, and that's the issue we're going to talk about today, which is abortion. Maybe a few others, yes, but that seems to be the real big one where that that seems to galvanize evangelicals to say, well, that's okay. We can take a Catholic on the Supreme Court as long as they take my stance on this mm-hmm. topic. 
Yeah, very, very good point. When I grew up as a Southern Baptist, Catholics were still viewed askance, you know. And Catholics, that was still uh, this rift, uh, you know, decades ago between uh, evangelical Protestants and Catholics. But now, as you just said, at Strange Bedfellows, uh, th these Republican presidents, including Trump, are nominating Catholics. Um, and uh, they represent uh, the kind of conservative positions that evangelical Protestants like, and hence they seem to go along with them well. The pipeline issue is very interesting to me. Uh, I don't know enough right. about it to get into it, but, but why aren't there uh, well-regarded uh, lower-level justices that are evangelical Protestants that would be ripe for the picking, so to speak, to be nominated for the Supreme Court? They just don't seem to be, which is a fascinating story in and of itself, I assume. And the last one we're going to take a look at is a published paper by Siri Hughes, who did some research looking at how many times Trump uses religious words in his speeches and his interactions with the with the you know the general population, and it's quite high. I was surprised how high it was, but it's almost three times higher than any other president from the last hundred years. So Trump is really leaning into the language, the evangelical language, when he makes his speeches and he makes his uh, calls for support. Yeah, very fascinating findings. This Siri Hughes individual is a PhD who is a fellow of communication and civic renewal. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but that's what he is right now at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But he's uh, made it his job uh, to study over the last hundred years, how many times in their official speeches and so forth, presidents use religious language, and as you say, Trump's at the top of the charts. You would not have expected that, given Trump's background, certainly not a highly religious person in his personal life from everything we know, but here he is, particularly since he got nominated back in 2016, using God in words relating to religion more than anybody else. Right. It tripled. His use tripled after his inauguration, which is interesting. Um, and it also is much higher when he's in religious you know, states with high amount of religious people. His language will also hmm. spike. Um, you could say, well, that's very cynical. You could also say that's just smart campaigning. Right. You use the yeah, language of the people. To the audience, right. You're speaking right. to the audience around you. Right. Yeah. If he's in Mississippi, he's uh, more likely to use religious language than if he's in Vermont. Right. I'm using those two because, as we know, they're the most and least religious states in the union. Although don't think Trump's done much campaigning in Vermont. <laughs> I, I probably not. I'm using that just as an example. OK. Yeah. OK. Right. Yeah. The numbers are pretty interesting. Trump used 7.3 religious terms per thousand words of speech far higher than any other president from the last hundred years. Well, our listeners should write that down. 7.3 religious terms per thousand words of speech. Isn't that interesting? It is. Uh, Dr. Hughes has spent his uh, recent career studying these things, and it's very interesting to get that kind of uh, summary, statistically speaking, uh, of how people use religious words uh, in their public pronouncements. And Trump's been uh, at the top of the list, as we said. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, and kind of say with all of this stuff going on the news and the media where's the election stand today where are we at any well, new it information hasn't changed much yeah we we say you know week after week we talk about this but it really hasn't changed all that much uh, biden is ahead mm -hmm. um, i just looked at a compilation of five high quality polls and he was ahead by 12 points over trump in the national uh, election uh, when you look at, say, real clear politics summary of polling, or you look at 538 summary of polling at the national level, you find that uh, Biden is ahead by 9 to 11 points, 12 points, something in that range. So that national number remains quite high. 
And it's very, very difficult for a president to, or a candidate to win the presidency in the electoral college if the national numbers are that high, because a rising tide lifts all ships. And therefore, if you're ahead by 10 points right before the election, you actually win the national popular vote by 10 points. Any candidate's going to win the electoral college. Keep in mind when we had the uh, 2000 election, uh, Gore versus Bush, where Gore won the popular vote, Bush won the Electoral College. Gore only won the popular vote by, by 500,000 votes, about half a percent. So that was very close in the popular vote. Uh, and when we look at the last election, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by about 2% and lost the Electoral College. So it is possible to win the popular vote, obviously. Uh, and not win the Electoral College, but if you're winning the popular vote by more than two, three, four, five percent, if it's higher than that, uh, you're not going to lose the Electoral College. So at the moment, Biden is ahead. Um, all right, we'll see if that holds out. Any new information, though, on the religious side of things? Yeah, Pew Research, our friends at Pew Research came out with a big poll uh, where they broke out religious groups. Um, and, and it's what we would expect, white evangelical Protestants, about eight in 10 voting for Trump. That's about the number we've seen elsewhere. Some differences on this one, white Catholics, they had Trump winning 52 to 44 over Biden, that is Pew did. And that's different than the ABC Washington Post poll that we talked about last week, where they actually had white Catholics mm. showing Biden slightly ahead. But as I cautioned last week, that Pew, that, excuse me, ABC Washington Post poll had a very small sample size, so there was a lot of margin of error. This Pew poll has 10,000 people in it, so I think it's a little more reliable in terms of the uh, point estimates because uh, they have much larger samples. But that's down. White Catholics were uh, more Trumpy, so to speak, more likely to vote for Trump previously, and now that margin is coming down some. Uh, mainline uh, Protestants still going for Trump, according to this, not nearly in the range that white evangelical Protestants are. And then all other groups go for Biden. Uh, the Jewish vote 70% for Biden in this Pew poll. Um, atheists and agnostics, 83% uh, for Biden, uh, nothing in particular, the famous nuns, that is, they don't mm -hmm. have a religious identity, 62 to 31 uh, for Biden. So all of the groups going for Biden. So it's the same pattern we've seen, but with uh, the national numbers being about a 10% spread in this poll, then, then we're seeing some uh, loss of support uh, for Trump among groups like white Catholics because they have to go down some if the national numbers uh, so large for Biden. Right. Right. Well, that's that's is interesting. What's also interesting looking at the data, of course, it's going down as approval ratings going down. It's pretty universal, but there's some pretty steep drops in certain areas. Uh, white Protestant, not evangelicals, a seven point drop in approval rating over time, whereas just Protestants in general has been remained very, very consistent. So you can see where the shifts are coming from and where that's happening as well. Yeah, I think uh, you're referring to another group of analysis by Pew there where they looked at trends over time uh, on approval rating right, right. for Trump, which is a good surrogate for likelihood to vote for Trump. Right. And, and you're right. They fall. Nevertheless, by far, the religious group in this country with the highest support for Trump in terms of his approval rating remains white evangelical Protestants. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about abortion. It's been a key issue, um, but what's the history of that? How long has it been an issue? We're going to talk about that, how it evolved into an issue, where our stances are of different candidates. So let's let's start diving in. Uh, history of abortion as a major issue in politics is very, very fascinating. Uh, I, I would say there are four points here. Uh, there were grassroots efforts after Roe versus Wade. 
uh, where a lot of individuals in this country who were anti-abortion decided to get involved in politics because they needed some kind of political outlet for their sentiments to try to uh, control the laws. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, conservative political leaders took on abortion because they realized that was a good wedge issue that they could use to mm -hmm. increase support for their candidates. Uh, and we're talking decades ago, but that's continuing now. Uh, Democrats, for their part, uh, more recently, a lot of analysis that I look at suggests have also uh, looked to politics as a way to uh, push for what they call reproductive justice and the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. Remember, the Hyde Amendment says that federal funds cannot be used to pay for abortion, but Democrats, for their own part, are becoming more involved with the abortion issue as well on the other side from Republicans and so on and so forth. So all of that, I think, has, all those trends have gone on and made abortion a more prominent issue now in politics than it was before. Um, I saw a fascinating chart, Nate, that shows using our Gallup data how much there has been a divergence between Democrats and Republicans. If you go back a few decades in terms of uh, saying, for example, that abortion should be legal or illegal in all cases, there wasn't much difference between Republicans and Democrats. Hmm. Uh, but now, like the, the mouth of an alligator widening, we're seeing this bigger and bigger gulf. So it's become increasingly a partisan issue. And what's also interesting, it seems to be increasingly becoming one of those, uh, like the single-issue voters. This has stepped up as a single-issue item. As this was being tracked, it looks like by Gallup here over time, it was an important factor, sure, early on, but it wasn't single-issue as it's becoming over time now. Yeah, it, it still isn't a dominant single-issue voter, even among highly religious people. Uh, even highly religious evangelicals, you find a lot who say they would consider voting for a candidate even if that candidate didn't agree with them on abortion. And when you interview evangelical Protestants, a lot of them say there are reasons why I might not vote for Trump ordinarily, but because he's pro-life, that's why I'm voting for him, single-issue voters. Uh, Nate, I had a question for you, point number two here, which is abortion in the Bible and its relationship to religion. Uh, you're the theological expert here. Uh, what do we find if we try to justify either position using biblical teaching? Well, the way you phrase that is right. The way if we try to justify one of these views using biblical teachings, and that's how oftentimes it's approached. Uh, I have a stance, I want to justify it, so I'm going to turn to the Bible to find my justification. And the Bible's a big book, and the reality is that if you want to justify either side using the Bible, you can pick verses that will do that on either side. So on the on the pro-life stance, the uh, the verses you'll go to are the ones talking about God knowing you before you're born, uh, knitting you together in the womb, and it's very much like hands-on. God is part of the process of forming you, so you shouldn't go against what God is doing, the miracle that God is creating of life in another body. Um, so that's that side. But if you want to go and try to say, well, hang on, but isn't there cases of abortion happening in the Bible? And then, yeah, there also are cases. And usually those are ones in the Old Testament, whether it be uh, declarations from God telling kings in the Old Testament, well, I want you to go and I want you to conquer this nation. And one of the things I want you to do is it's very graphic and very violently cause abortions in these women. And if if that's the case, and God's once knitting people's, you know, knitting people in the womb, and now God is saying, undo this. So you can find, you can find that on both sides. It depends what you're trying to argue. Mm -hmm. 
where you'll find that. And I don't think we find Jesus mentioning it at all, uh, relevant to evangelical Protestants and Catholics. Uh, This is not an issue that we have in the New Testament uh, that Jesus talks about. Or I'm not sure, does Paul talk about it anywhere? Because, you know, a lot of the justifications relating to same-sex marriage and so forth come from some of the utterances of of the Apostle Paul, but I don't know that he mentions abortion, does he? Or nothing, nothing clear. I mean, they're going. That's why they fall back to the sanctity of life, because there is a lot of language talking about how important life is, uh, and so you can find clarity around that, and then you can use that to apply it back. So as we move though off of off of that and looking at our current candidates, what's fascinating is how both of them have switched. Uh, yes, here's a headline for you. Not a headline, but a quote. 1999, Donald Trump. I am pro-choice in every respect. An interview in 1999. How's that? Uh, Mm. And, of course, now he is very, very specifically and precisely pro-life in all of his pronouncements, um, and in particular in terms of his policies. Um, Right. Most pro-life president ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what he says. On the other hand, Biden, uh, we have several examples from way back in his political career where he expressed... Uh, more pro-life sentiments back then, and he also voted in some ways that people interpret as being a pro-life vote. Uh, He's changed his mind. Now uh, we have uh, Biden saying that I'm very much pro-choice and I very much support a woman's right to choose. So both candidates, Trump and Biden, have changed their positions on abortion over the years to end up where they are today. That's right. So, and and what's fascinating both about that and uh, as we've talked about, about Americans and where Americans have landed, is that Americans too are mostly in the middle, maybe flowing a little bit left and right, one side or another, as uh, as time goes on as well. Yeah, I've studied, of course, a lot of attitudes over the years as a pollster, and Americans generally are opposed to banning things in general. They don't like absolutes. We find that on gun control. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans are very much in favor of a lot of restrictions on guns, but when you say should, for example, all handguns be banned, the majority say no. And we find the same thing on abortion. Uh, When we ask a classic question Gallup has asked for many, many years now, we find a relatively small percent, about 20% of Americans, who say abortion should be illegal in all circumstances, kind of the pure pro-life position. That's just 20% of all Americans. On the other hand, a slightly higher number, a little less than 30%, say that it should be legal in all circumstances. But do the math there, that leaves about half, a little more than half of Americans, uh, who say that there should be restrictions on abortion, but it shouldn't be banned. So that's how, when I'm asked at a public uh, speech, where do Americans stand on abortion, I say they're uncomfortable with it. In fact, the country mm-hmm. split kind of half and half when you ask them, should abortion, is abortion morally acceptable? About half say yes, half say no. But when it comes to the idea of banning it, you've got uh, just a relatively small percent who say they want it totally illegal in all circumstances. So that's how I summarize uh, where the public stands now. Uncomfortable with abortion, uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time uh, not wanting it banned altogether. But that differs. Right, that it? differs by religion. Now, if you go to church once a week, Nate, uh, mm-hmm. 39% of that group say that it should be illegal in all circumstances. So that's about twice the national average. But notice that number, 39% of Americans who attend church wow. once a week, the most religious we have in our data, say that it should be illegal in all circumstances. So you still have a majority of that highly religious group who say that abortion should be either 
legal in certain circumstances or um, legal in all circumstances. Now, if you go down right. to the— Nothing monolithic. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If you go down to the group who say that uh, they never attend church, then only 11% say it should be illegal in all circumstances. So there is a difference by religion. That's the point I'm making here, mm-hmm. but it's, by, mm-hmm. as you just said, by no means monolithic. Uh, even within Republicans, I isolated in our data Republicans, just Republicans, who attend church once a week. And so that's uh, you know, a pretty conservative group. And that's 50% who say abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. Uh, and that drops as Republicans attend church less and less. So there is a relationship uh, so that holds, by yeah. church attendance among Republicans, but it's still uh, nothing like 100%. And the same thing for Democrats. Uh, you certainly find a big difference by attendance. But even among Democrats who never attend church, uh, just about half say that abortion should be legal in all circumstances. So there is a relationship to religion, uh, but it's by no means uh, absolute. Yeah, that legal under certain circumstances is the clear winner in almost every category. But watching it flow from one side to the other as church attendance drops is fascinating. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, on the single-issue voting that we talked about a minute ago, um, even people who attend church very frequently, weekly, uh, just 28% in our Gallup data say that they would only vote for a candidate who shares their views. And then among people who seldom or never attend church, it's 24%. So we don't have a huge number of single-issue voters uh, among the highly religious or the not religious at all. Uh, but they're not that different. So in other words, there's some intensity among the more liberal people who never attend church on abortion as a single issue. Obviously, they're more likely to be looking for a candidate who's in favor of abortion rights. And there's some intensity among weekly attenders who are looking for a candidate who's more pro-life. But again, we don't see by any means a majority who say they would only vote for a candidate who shares their position on abortion. What are the implications of that? I find that just absolutely fascinating because I think part of the media just really pumps this up as being like, this is the issue to end all issues, but the reality is in the data. Most people are right in the middle. Uh, Yeah. So I think the implications of that are that even though Trump is working very, very hard to reach out to individuals using the wedge issue of abortion, um, Mm -hmm. it's not like every evangelical Protestant in America is going to say, aha, now that he has appointed uh, more conservative justices and made some other policy changes and has appointed Amy Comey Barrett, that's going to be the reason I vote for him. It might kind of underscore or reinforce their support for Trump, but there are a lot of people, even in that camp of evangelical, highly religious Protestants, who are saying uh, that's not the only issue that I'm going to vote on. So what we found here is is the following. Uh, Abortion is—I'm going to summarize here. It's a key issue in this campaign, more so than I remember it being in previous campaigns, uh, because Trump has brought it up a lot. Um, It's highly partisan now, uh, abortion, as we've seen. Uh, Biden and Trump have strong positions on the issue, pro-life, pro-abortion rights. Biden obviously being pro-abortion rights, Trump being pro-life. Their positions have flipped in their lifetime, which is always fascinating, but that's fine. All of our positions, I guess, evolve as we go through Mm -hmm. life. Uh, The public's position, as we've talked about, kind of in the middle, uh, relatively few people on either end of the spectrum there. Uh, The more religious Americans are, clearly the more pro-life they are, but that's not absolute. And then you have told us and guided us on the uh, Bible's relationship to a position on abortion. And I guess your bottom line would be? 
Well, it's, it's it depends what you're trying to find there. It's a big book. There's lots of there's lots of words in there. You can choose which other side you want to reinforce that side. Yeah, fascinating issue. Again, I think that it's but not clarity. There's not there's not a clarity in there on that yeah. issue. So a lot of uh, lack of clarity, I guess, on that issue, and also lack of clarity on exactly how powerful abortion is going to be as a wedge issue. Trump has really glommed onto it. Uh, since he was elected president, he's been very, very pro-life in his appointments, in his public pronouncement, and in his policy decisions. Uh, I think that's going to reinforce his base, but whether or not that's bringing in any new people or not um, is, is difficult to uh, ascertain from the data we have at this point. Right. So that's our deep dive for today. We started off our episode talking about a quiz, so let's circle back to that. Micah, what is, the, what is our quiz for this week? How many times is God mentioned in the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, I'm sure since we raised this question at the beginning, Mike and Nate, you rushed over on the side and looked up the uh, Constitution and read through it to see. Yes, yes. All right, I read it start to finish um, <laughs> while we were having this conversation. Yeah, you, know, so. you were going on and on about some topic, whatever, and I just read uh, you the were Constitution. Right, so I'm ready to go. Multitasking. That's right. That's right. Well, what did you right. find? How many times is God mentioned in the Constitution? Uh, zero. Uh, what was your guess, Micah? I was going to say like two or three. Yeah, well, Nate's right. It's zero. Uh, now, every state constitution, this source that I had uh, mentions God or the divine in one way or the other, but there's no mention of God in the U.S. Constitution. Now, the Declaration I, of Independence I mentioned earlier has four mentions of the divine or something spiritual, not necessarily uh, God mm. per se. Um, one mention is, to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. That's near the beginning. And then the, later on it says, uh, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Does that strike a bell? That sure well, does, Creators, yeah. obviously, so synonymous with God there. And then later on it says in the Declaration, a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And then finally it says, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So I guess sacred is an indirect reference to uh, mm -hmm. the divine. So anyhow, there, there are mentions by our founding fathers um, of the divine and God in the Declaration of Independence, but none in the Constitution, although what I thought was interesting to note was that every state has some mention of God or the divine in uh, their state constitutions. That piece I didn't know. That's fascinating. The other piece I knew from it, probably from a civics class, it was bouncing around the back of my head still that there were no mentions. But about the states, that's mm -hmm. new. That's we have a good memory about about the U.S. Constitution. So congratulations, you win the prize on this one, Nate. Woo! Yeah. So <laughs> trivia, trivia night's been good for me today. Absolutely. So uh, looking ahead for our next podcast, we are going to have a major event this week in Nashville, Tennessee. Unless it's canceled, you never know. But we have a debate, know. the final debate that planned by the Commission on Presidential Debates from the very beginning is still on October 22nd in Nashville, Tennessee with a moderator. Six issues have been announced they're going to discuss, and it's going to be Trump and Great. Biden. So 
Okay, well, looking forward to that. So for all those people who haven't yet cast their votes, there's still time to change your minds as you see this final debate. Yeah. But I think probably most people are pretty settled by now. Yeah, our data show that. We've spent quite a bit of time looking at data, you know, looking for uncommitted voters and so forth. It's a very small group. Uh, and, and the other thing that's happening is a lot of people have already cast their votes. Uh, more early voting going on than in any previous election because of COVID-19 and so forth, and states relaxing their restrictions on early voting. So by the time this d debate takes place on Thursday, October 22nd, um, A, a lot of Americans will already have locked in their vote, voted, and B, mm -hmm. Americans mm -hmm. who haven't, uh, our data show a lot of them have already decided who they're going to vote for. So it's, it'll be fascinating to watch, unclear how many minds it might change uh, no matter what happens. Uh, since Biden's yeah. ahead, uh, just one last thought here, obviously his people are hoping that there's no major gaffe on Biden's part. And uh, right. Nate Trump's people are going to have to decide whether or not they want to try to convince him not to have that kind of rambunctious, aggressive style that he displayed in that first debate in Cleveland uh, and maybe present a new persona. Now, whether or not that could actually come about, given Trump's personality and his proclivity to act the same way wherever he goes out publicly, uh, it, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, Trump is Trump, and that's what you, you get what you get with that. So I Apparently think we'll so. see more of Trump on the yeah, stage. But anyhow, whatever we'll happens, see. We'll, see. Uh, we'll, we'll come back yeah, and, it'll and be talk fine. about it. Yeah. And we'll see if religion we'll comes up in, in the debate. Uh, if it does, yeah. it'll probably, surprise, surprise, be relating to abortion in the Supreme Court. Right, and now we're well-armed for that. Mm -hmm. So so thank you, listeners, for listening. This has been Objective Religion, our podcast uh, produced in partnership with Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. I'm Dr. Frank Newport, sociologist and Gallup senior scientist. And I'm Reverend Nate Brantam, Presbyterian minister and campus minister at the University of Illinois. And I'm Michael Lambert, producer. We love hearing from our listeners, so please give us a call at 254-237-3298 and leave a message with any questions or comments, or send us an email at objectivereligionpodcast at gmail.com.